I'm starting out sweaty today. <laughs> Look, fat guys sweat, okay? That's just how it works. Sing like one song, it's just like <laughs> Used to be summertime, play basketball outside, not, not sweat barely at all. Now it's like, get up from the chair, raise my hands a little bit, push. So deal with it. Um, amazing to think about God and how much he loves us. I mean, of course, we love him, but that's because he first loved us. And just to be, I hope that you guys can just be kind of enveloped in his love today. You all have been through a lot in the last couple of years. We all have. Um, and it's good to just be reminded how much he loves us and how much he went through for us. That's uh, an amazing thing. So my first real job was at Elmer's Restaurant. I was a bus boy. It was a couple weeks ago. No, it was a while ago. Back in those days, we wore black pants, white short-sleeved dress shirt, and a black bow tie. <clears throat> I looked good. I basically dressed fancier than some people do for their weddings these days. Um, and why did I dress so fancy? So that I could clean up your half-eaten nasty pancakes off of the table in a bow tie. That was the thing, right? That's what I did. The outfit, it was my uniform, right? It's what told people in the restaurant that I worked there. Um, and so they knew who they could yell at or whatever the case was. Uh, I wore it because I had to wear it. I would have rather worn, you know, a hoodie and jeans, uh, but that was not what the owners of Elmer's wanted, and I worked for them, so I wore the bow tie. And there came a time when I was done working for Elmer's, and I resigned my post as a busboy. <clears throat> it was a difficult time for all of us. Um, I did not continue to wear the bow tie after that. Uh, but imagine had I really loved it at Elmer's and I just really felt this is amazing. I would have stayed there forever and I would have worn the bow tie or whatever. Like right after I left, I got to wear polo shirts, which was like a total bummer. But yeah, I know. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Anyway, um, but I would have still been wearing their uniform if I had loved it and stayed there for my whole life. Um, there's another symbol that I wear. It's this right here. This ring, I got this uh, when I got married. Uh, and I wear this so that I remember and that everybody who sees it understands that I belong to Tiffany. And if I forget or somebody else does, she is quick to remind me. Um, so I probably didn't even need it. Uh, she'll let me know. But I wear it voluntarily uh, because I pledged myself to Tiffany as her husband. And this is the symbol of that. It's a symbol of that. There are ways that we show our relationship to people or organizations or groups or things like that. Uh, you might wear your favorite team's jersey when you're, there we go. You have no idea what I'm going to say about people who do that. So it's just coming out with it. That's, you're risking. No, it's fine. You guys want to wear jerseys of teams you never played for. It's totally cool. Don't worry about it. It's all right. We all think it's normal. No, I'm kidding. It's totally fine. But you wear it because you want to show your support. You're identifying yourself with that team and not with the other teams, right? That's, that's the thing. That's what you're doing. Um, people might wear a t-shirt or a sweatshirt for some school they went to or even some TV show or movie that they like. There are people who have like dedicated a whole like room in their house to Star Wars or Spider-Man or things like that. Don't worry. Don't, it's fine. Young guys, no problem. I'm sure there are a lot of ladies interested in marrying you and sleeping in your Han Solo sheets. That's <laughs> it's just, they're lining up. If you can make sure to play video games all day and not get a job, you'll really bring it in. So do that. But right, they like Spider-Man, whatever it is. And so they got the underoos. They're like, they're into it. They're into it. 
<laughs> we identify ourselves with things that we want to show some allegiance to. Now, there's an interesting way in which you can mark yourself to show allegiance to someone in, in Israel a few thousand years ago. And Lord willing, in a couple minutes, I'm going to tell you about that. But first, I want to talk about where we are and what we're doing. We're going to study. Um, we started a new one last week. Uh, we're studying the book of Romans and an amazing, amazing book. They all are. They're all amazing. This one is pretty intense. And so uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, show up next time. And if you didn't get a chance to watch it on video, you might want to go back and do that because this is going to build. It's going to build. We're studying. This is, this is not something you can just kind of come and get a one-off from and get as much as you would if you stayed with the whole thing. So if you get a chance, go back and watch that or listen to it uh, wherever you get your podcasts or, or whatever. Watch it on YouTube or the app, whatever. Um, but, but I highly recommend you catch up. Uh, Romans, really, it really builds as it goes. And last week, we spent a lot of time on context. What was, who's Paul? Who are the Romans? Where are the Roman churches? What was Rome like? What's going on? And, and you have to kind of have an idea, Gentiles and Jews and all this kind of stuff that we were talking about last week. If you want to understand what's happening, you want to know all of that stuff. So, so get into that if you can. Um, this time, we're going to try to get into uh, the actual text. Um, we did a lot of history and stuff last time. We want to get into the text this time, um, break it down, understand what God is revealing to us in the scripture here. Now, if you don't have a Bible at home, there are Bibles in front of you on these rows. That is our gift to you. Take that with you. Take it home. Have it. Don't worry about it. You don't owe us anything. Um, this is our gift to you. We're not selling you anything. We just think that you should have a Bible in your house. We think that you should have the Word of God so you can read it. We want you to have it. It's yours to have. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, I do actually recommend as we go through Romans, of course, I always recommend, but particularly as we go through Romans, that you bring a Bible with you to church on Sunday because you're going to want to be able to follow along and you're going to want to probably write some notes maybe in the margins of your Bible, maybe circle some words, underline some words. You can do that. It's okay um, to, to do that. So um, I would recommend it. It's just my suggestion. You know, I'm not telling you what to do. It's not a mandate. It's not a mandate. Okay? Be sending me emails. They've been telling me what to do. Listen, do what you want, okay? You do you, all right? But if you want to study this well, I'd bring a Bible. So um, let's get in the first verse. Why not just get right into it? Uh, it says this, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. All right, first verse. Opening verse says a lot. This is a letter, as you, as you probably know from last week. It's a letter to the churches that were in Rome. And he just, there's a lot going on there. It may seem like a quick introduction, but there's a lot, of, a lot going on there. I'm, I'm one of the people, probably a few people, who still writes letters and sends letters, like through the mail. People are like, what's the mail? It's the thing where you get bills, but you also can send letters that way. And I still do that, actually. I still do that. Uh, when I was a young uh, child, I used to write letters to my grandpa, Bill Field, who some of you may have known. He passed away some years back. Um, but we would write letters to each other. He lived in Sunnyside, Washington, so we're by like Yakima and that area. And I lived in California, and then I lived in Vancouver. And we would write these letters uh, to each other, and I would get these letters from him. He would always end his letter with, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, because apparently we had watched The Wizard of Oz together, and I had thought that was funny or whatever. So. He kept it going. He kept it going. Um, and, and here's the thing. I remember getting excited to get a letter in the mail from Grandpa. The letters would come on these pieces of yellow paper, like on a legal pad, in cursive, hard to read. My mom's having to read half of it to me. because Not because I couldn't read cursive, because back then we learned cursive. Right, old people? Cursive? What's up? Yeah, millennials. No, come on. 
People put memes about that, like, why aren't they learning cursive? I don't know, because no one uses it or needs it anymore? Well, whatever. Um, I do know it, though, I think. I don't know about, like, the Z and stuff. I don't know if I'd still do that. But they were cursive. It'd be hard to read them. Um, but, man, getting mail was fun when I was a kid. It was fun. Um, I say that to say that the letters I write now are not uh, as cute as all that. Uh, when I write letters now, they also might start on a legal pad, and then they end up getting typed out and printed out and sent out. Um, my letters, like the letter to the Romans, also convey a lot of information in the first line. They usually say something like this. <clears throat> my name is David Robinson. I'm an attorney representing some person or business who's quite unhappy with you. <laughs> and they are going to use my services to sue you if you do not pay them a lot of money now. That's the rough kind of first line. Uh, a lot of information there. And for some reason, people do not like receiving my letters like I like receiving grandpa's. It was, uh, they seem to have a different reaction when they get a letter from me, which is a shame. But on the bright side, I get paid a lot of money to write them. So we got that. They're like, well, I don't like this at all. I've gotten one of those letters. Don't worry about it. I've never written you one probably. Um, and if I have, you should pay. Seriously. You don't want to. <laughs> this is an attempt to collect a debt. Uh, here, uh, <laughs> here the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to share a lot of information in a very short space. One little spot here. Let's break it down, Okay. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Let's stop right there. That's saying a lot. That's saying a lot. Some translations, uh, if you have a different translation than the New King James Version, it may say uh, bondservant, it may say servant, it may say slave. All of those would be correct interpretations uh, or fair interpretations of the word doulos, which is the word that is used in Greek there. Um, and it's more than a random word. It's more than a random word. Uh, as the Holy Spirit is using Paul to write, he's inspiring Paul to write here, he wants to help us understand how Paul saw himself in Christ. And, and, and it's, I guess it's kind of easy just to pass by because this is the kind of stuff that maybe Christians say or, or we see it, we kind of pass by them as we read the beginning of the, all these letters. We're like, Paul, a bondservant of, of Christ, that type of thing. We're like, okay, yeah, he, he serves Jesus, that type of thing. It's much more than that. It's much more than that. Um, in the Roman world, there was a lot of slavery going on, um, and to this day, actually, there's still a lot of slavery that goes on. Um, but Paul was a Jewish man and was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Now, in the Old Testament, the Israelites could have a bondservant or slave that might have been purchased for another reason, for a number of different reasons, right? These were Hebrews, these were other Israelites, who maybe they had a debt they couldn't pay. And so they'd sell their, their work themselves to somebody as a bondservant, or maybe uh, they had stolen something they couldn't pay back, and so they needed to do it for that reason, or maybe they were just very poor, and they kind of needed to be taken care of, and they were willing to, to work, and so they would make themselves a bondservant to, to a person, and they would be a servant for six years. In the seventh year, they had to be released. Um, they, they were not, it was not perpetual servitude. It, it, was not like, it, it was not like we saw in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries uh, in this country and in Europe and in different places, the kind of slavery where it was chattel slavery. You owned a person, you thought of them as less than you. That, that kind of evil nonsense was not going on at all. This was more of a, hey, I'm going to work for you for a certain amount of time. Kind of like most of the jobs you all have, right? Like, I'm going to work, you're going to pay me, it's going to be this thing. But it was different than that because you were in the home. You were a part of the family for six years. And in the seventh year, uh, you were released and you went on your way. Um, Sometimes the bondservant didn't want to go. Sometimes they loved their master so much that they wanted to stay in his home and serve him for the rest of their life. 
him or her. They were like, this, this is amazing. I like it here. I love serving this person. This is something that, that gives me joy, and I actually want to stay. It was a choice that they could make on their own. Nobody could make them make the choice. It was a voluntary choice. They were free to go, but if they wanted to stay and be that master servant forever, they went through this ceremony to show their allegiance to their master. This is what it looked like. Listen to the scriptures. Exodus 21, 5 through 6. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. They, they take him, put that ear there, take an awl, which is like a spike, and they pierce their ear right to the doorpost. You all are like, yuck, but you all have earrings. So, um, and he shall serve him forever. Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 17, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. So they were going to get stuff too when they left. Okay? You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you, because he loves you and your house, since he prospers with you, then you shall take an all... And thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also your female servant, you shall do likewise. When I read this, I'm just blown away that someone would willingly make themselves a servant, a bond servant, a bond slave, for the rest of their life. They're going to be this person's servant forever, willingly. They could have taken the, the stuff, they were going to give them stuff and send them on their way, and they could have gotten started. Whatever debt they had or whatever reason they had, had to sell their labor to this person is over, and they're like, no, I love my master. So much, not that I want to get a house near him and visit him, I want to be his servant for life. This just doesn't kind of mesh with most of us because we don't think of being a servant as necessarily a good thing. We don't really like submission and service. We have a hard time with that. But if you've ever had a really good boss, somebody who really honored you, maybe, it's, maybe you have some idea. Like, no, I don't mind working for them. This person is not putting themselves above me, doesn't think they're more valuable than me. This person wants to work together with me and, and loves me, and I don't mind serving in this case. You may have had that. You may have had that. But in this case, they, they had to go for the judges. Well, why do they do that? Well, to make sure that the master's not saying, yeah, he wants to stay with me. I mean, you can't, you can't do that. So they go in front of the judges to show, yeah, this is my voluntary thing. Then they go and they take the awl and pierce the ear to the door, sort of, sort of uh, putting an association between this person and that house where they want to serve, right? There, there's at least one author who talks about using the awl, which is kind of like a nail, and piercing the ear as, as kind of identifying yourself or having a kind of pre-looking at Christ and identifying ourselves with him being pierced for us. I, don't, I, I find that interesting. I don't know if that's uh, a necessary interpretation here, um, but th this is what you did if you wanted to be a servant for life. Now, the world does not like the idea of service or being servants. The world generally looks down on submission and serving. We generally like the people who are rich and powerful and famous and all this kind of stuff, and we rarely are looking at the person who's serving in their house and honoring them. 
But that's what I've told you before, if you've been around long, Jesus is always turning the world upside down. Jesus came as a servant, a suffering servant. You think you suffer and you do, but he did too and didn't have to for you because he's a servant. And if we're going to be like him, we're going to be servants to him who is the king of kings and lord of lords forever. The case of the bondservant who chooses to serve his or her master for life is an act of love and devotion, probably to someone who has shown you intense love and affection and cherishing. So it makes you want to do it. Paul here is calling himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. Take that all and nail my ear to the door of the kingdom. Nail my ear to the door of the kingdom and let me stick it, they'd stick an earring in it so everyone would know. And let me have this symbol that says, I am Christ's because I love his house and I love my master and he has loved me. That's what Paul's saying. All that in Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. All of that is implied in my opinion and I think that that's uh, what many of the commenters you would read would say, as they do. He's identifying himself as Jesus Christ's servant forever. This is a massive statement. A massive statement. Paul is dedicated, dedicated to Jesus Christ. He wants to serve Jesus because, and you can't miss this in the writings that the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write. Paul loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. Jesus paid it all. He paid the debt that Paul owed because of Paul's sin. And Paul considered himself to be the chief of sinners. And Jesus had paid for him. It is no wonder that Paul wanted to repay, not the debt, which he could never repay, but his own love and affection to Jesus. Paul responded in love and sacrificial service to the point where he begins this letter and others by identifying himself as Christ's bondservant. Now, as I said, this is a response, right? You're not going to find a person who had a bondservant, treated them horribly, didn't give them enough to eat, didn't honor them, didn't treat them like one of family, didn't do any of that stuff. You're not going to have them at the end of six years be like, yeah, I want to stay, slam a thing through my ear in the door. They're not going to do that, right? The only way it's happening is as like this natural response to love. It's the only way that's happening. This is how... We should be seeing Jesus. This love so incredible that we're willing to give up our own will and submit to the will of God. And of course, he gives it all back to us in making us fully who we are. This is not some quick introduction. This is not some little Christianese thing that Christians say. This is a serious and powerful statement of the identity that Paul has in Christ Jesus. And this is where we all need to be. This is where we all need to be. Who are you? I'm David Robinson, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Right? Every one of you needs to be able to insert your name there. We, that's who we want to be. Submitting ourselves to him. Our comfort and our peace and our hope, they're all dependent on God. Why wouldn't we want to be in his house? Right? We've been saved by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and his powerful grace and our response is to pierce our ear with an awl to the doorpost of God's house. So, I've got an awl. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to go do that today. <laughs> People are like, whoa, easy. Um, let's get practical. You don't need to go get your ear pierced. This is something that happens in the heart. It's something that happens in the heart. 
to be identified with Christ, to be identified with his house as servants. People without an earring or, or a necklace with a cross or a shirt that says, not today, Satan, or whatever, you know, we, we, we wear. You, I, all that's fine. Do all that. But people should be able to see that you're a bondservant of Christ by the way that you live, by the things that you say, by the way that you talk, by what you spend your time on, by what you spend your money on. Those are the things that should be looked at. This person is, in fact, completely committed to the will of God. That's what we want to be able to see. Because it's the response. And here's the deal. It's the reasonable response. It's the reasonable response. Lord willing, we're going to see this if-then connection when we get to Romans 12. At some point, I don't know how long that's going to take. We're going to work at it, okay? Look, we're like a third of the way through one verse. We're going to get there. <clears throat> There's this if-then connection between God's gift of grace and mercy and his power and his authority and our humble, sacrificial service as a response to who God is, to what he's done. So when we get to that chapter, I'm going to read you a couple verses from it real quick so that you just have an idea. So when we come back to it, you can remember how this part connects to that part. How this first thing Paul says connects to Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is what it says. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or rational service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's happening here? What he's saying is this. You heard the word therefore. I told you to look out for that word. I beseech you, therefore. What Paul's doing is, all through this, this first 11 chapters, there's something going on. And then there's different things going on within those chapters. We're going to look at that. But when he gets to chapter 12, and I think that the therefore there is actually saying all this stuff that I just talked about, who God is, what he's done, what sin looks like, why you need him, what, you know, how grace has saved you, all of these things, who the Israelites are, who the Gentiles are, what God has done for you, all of these things. And then, then he gets to 12 and he goes, therefore, what? Make yourself a living sacrifice, which is reasonable. I have laid out this argument so that the only thing that's left, if you are a rational, reasonable human being, so that you would make yourself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That you would present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your reasonable service. And allow God to transform you. It's all there. So what you're going to see, now Paul's smart, okay? Super smart. Like he knows math and stuff. Like he's got it. Like he's <laughs> the whole thing. Like Jeopardy and stuff, he could probably do all that. But here's the deal. No person could have put this book of Romans together the way that it's put together without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is so like if you're, if I was one of those conspiracy like theorists with like the red yarn going all over the thing, like you put the book of Romans up there and it's like, everything's connecting, everything's like saying itself this way and then you look, it's, it's amazing. And this is one of those things. We're going to see more where it's like the beginning and the end say the same thing, and then all this stuff, all these connections. Here you see this connection out of the gate. He's going to tell you that he's a bondservant. And then right in the middle, when he starts talking to us about how we ought to live, he tells us essentially to do the same thing. And then he's going to go on to tell us how to do that. We're Lord willing, we will get there. It's the only thing that makes sense. Now, 
Let's get back to verse 1 for a second. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Now, we got some stuff to talk about here with apostle, okay? Um, and I'm not going to lie to you. This is as far in this verse as we're getting today, so just <laughs> sit back. They're not all going to be like this, Lord willing. Acts was like this too. The first, like the first page of Acts is like all torn in my Bible because we were in it for so long. It starts off slow because we've got to build everything up so that we can understand everything later. Eventually, we'll be cooking through like two, three verses at a time, so we'll be fine. I thought I was going to get through the first seven verses, if you can believe that. Yeah, it's all not, not happening. Uh, all right. Called to be an apostle. An apostle. This is extremely important to put up front. Now, let me tell you why it's extremely important to put up front. Because if Paul is not an apostle, what business does he have writing a letter to the churches at Rome? Think about this. If I wrote a letter, okay, to another church in Vancouver, let's say I wrote to New Heights or Crossroads or one of these churches, I read a letter to them. In this letter, I tell them with authority what, how they should live, what theology they should be following, what the Bible really says about this, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, and I'm telling them, you need to listen to this. Uh, my guess is they are not going to uh, file that letter anywhere but that circular file cabinet that goes out to the recycling. Hopefully they recycle. Um, in any case, <laughs> because, you know, you don't recycle, we're all going to die. No, you should. I'm kidding. You should take care of the earth. I was just being a jerk. Um, anyway. I'm sure they recycle. Um, that's where it's going to go, though. Why would they keep a letter from me? What authority do I have to write them a letter? You know what their authority is? The scriptures. That's our authority. That's their authority. We don't have people out there who can just go and write letters with authority to a church and tell them what to do, generally speaking. But at this time, Paul was an apostle and is saying, in the word apostle, he's saying, just so you know, up front, there's a reason you should read this. I'm actually in charge of you. Spiritually. I have authority over this church because as we talked about last week, it had started out with Jewish believers and then it had become a Gentile church because the Jews had gone out and they'd come back. And so Paul had kind of general authority over the Gentile churches because he was an apostle. He was an apostle. God was using apostles to plant churches inspiring apostles to write the New Testament scriptures. God was doing signs and wonders through the apostles to verify the gospel message. All of these things were happening. He's healing people, casting out demons, uh, doing, you know, raising from the dead. All kinds of stuff was going on through the apostles. God was doing that to verify the truth of the scripture and the witness of the resurrection. That was what was going on. Okay? So Paul's an apostle specifically to the Gentiles. But not just anyone could call himself an apostle. Okay, you can just say, I'm an apostle. And people are like, okay, you can just choose to do that. It wasn't like that. Okay? Um, it, was, it was different. The word apostle, according to the outline of biblical usage, means a delegate, messenger, one sent forth with orders. There is, as with many things in the scripture, more than one sort of interpretation of how the apostle thing works. Okay? And, and I want to walk you through it, um, sort of the, a couple of different ideas about what that means. Okay? I said, I put in my notes here, we will do the quick version. It's, no, it's not. It's not going to be quick. Um, some people would probably say that being an apostle is sort of an office within the church and that that office continues to today. So in, in this case, we would have, you know, uh, you know uh, folks doing this, folks doing that, and then, like, say, pastors and deacons and elders and apostles. Like, there would still be apostles, like, as an office. 
Uh, they would say that continues to this day. Uh, maybe some people would still kind of have the authority that Paul has and could say write letters to a church and tell them what to do and that type of a thing. Um, others would see apostleship in a couple of different ways, okay? I've heard it referenced as capital A apostleship and little a apostleship. Apostleship starts with an A, in case you're wondering what I meant by that. Capital A apostleship would be the office of apostle. And for the people who are kind of, who see it this way, they would say that that would have been fulfilled likely with the 12 apostles in the first century. That those were the people who were called and sent out to do this specific thing, the office of being an apostle. The kind of thing Paul is doing here when he's saying, I'm an apostle, so you need to read what I send you. You need to understand that I'm going to come there and I'm going to, I want to bear fruit among you. I'm going to be doing some teaching and I'm going to be asking for some help as I go on to Spain. We'll see that later towards the end of the book um, and, and can tell them to do that. A lot of people believe that that office was specific to those folks that Jesus chose and that it did not continue. For instance, we don't see when an apostle dies in the scripture, we don't necessarily see uh, them replacing that person, except with one exception, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but you don't necessarily see that happening because that wasn't the point. They were there to do the early work. Little a apostleship would refer to people who have an apostolic ministry or an apostle-like ministry. They have responsibilities that would include, say, overseeing churches. So there was a time when the elders of this church were overseeing a number of churches in the Philippines. And people would look at that and say, that's an apostolic ministry. There's churches that are planted, and we're helping them along, serving them by giving oversight. That's not the office of apostle. That's a ministry that's apostle-like or apostolic, little a. Okay, it's not an office. You're not one of the apostles. I tend towards that camp, the second camp, okay? I believe there are people who are delegates and messengers of God who are sent forth to, to proclaim the gospel. And in that sense, they could be referred to sort of as having an apostolic ministry. I don't know that I would call them apostles. I think that can get confusing, but they might have an apostolic ministry. Um, but I do not believe that there are people in the office of apostle anymore who are set aside to literally have authority in this kind of a way, okay? Um, originally, the apostles had to meet certain criteria to become apostles. Okay? They were chosen by God to spread the gospel after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. One of the original disciples named Judas Iscariot, you may have heard of him, he betrayed Jesus Christ and died. Now, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, as the scriptures had foretold this long, long, long before Judas was born. Um, so in the first chapter of Acts, we read that the disciples replaced Judas. Now, we're gonna, this is important. Let's walk through this for a second. This is what the scripture says, because this is going to go to, just so you know where I'm going, I don't want to hide the ball here. We're going to talk about whether Paul is the 12th apostle, or whether the person we're about to read about, Matthias, is supposed to be the 12th apostle. Okay, so I just want to give you so you're thinking as we walk through this. Acts 1, 21 through 26. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us, this is Peter's talking to, to the people. Okay, there's like 120 people with him now. Um, they're, they're recognizing that Judas is dead. They're going to replace him. And this is what he says, the criteria. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So he set out the criteria as, had to be with us for the three years of ministry and have witnessed Jesus alive after he was dead. Those are the criteria for us to consider you as an apostle, to consider making you the 12th apostle. 
And they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This is interesting. For a couple of reasons. Let's go through them. It's 1109. We're all right. Here we go. The first reason that's interesting to me is that Peter and the other apostles, the 11, decided to name another person, another apostle, to take the office of the 12th apostle without waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. Okay? The Father was going to send the Spirit to baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's, that was the thing. Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem. He could have named an apostle when he told them that a couple of days ago before he ascended, but he didn't. He told them to wait on the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't say for sure that they were supposed to wait to name the 12th apostle, but I can tell you this. Sometimes when I think God would really want this, I move without enough prayer, without enough thought, and I move forward, and I shouldn't. I'm not saying that they did, okay? They and I will have to have this conversation when I get to heaven. I'm sure they're like, oh, yeah, we can't wait. Yeah. I don't know. But they didn't wait. Now, you might be wondering, well, maybe Jesus told them that a long time ago, and that's why they, nope, he told them it like a couple days before, right? Wait for the Holy Spirit. And like, well, but maybe they were going to have to wait a really long time. Nope. He said it's going to happen in a few days. And they just like, well, let's just do this. Let's just do this. Look, this is what the passage from Acts 1, just a little bit before the passage that we just read, is Jesus, before he, goes, before he ascends, saying this to them, Acts 4, 1, 4 through 8. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I'm going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Yep. We should probably get some business done first. This is what's going on, I guess. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, right after that, they could have said, who should we name as the 12th apostle? Except that Jesus wasn't ready to tell them that and told them to wait. And a couple days later, they didn't. Okay? This is the second issue that I have. They cast lots. I cannot think of another place in the New Testament after this time that we hear about here, right before Pentecost, where the apostles cast lots to make a decision. You know why? Because in a few days they got the Holy Spirit. And they didn't need to cast lots because the Spirit was a witness for them. They were given the gift of the Holy Spirit and he guides them into all truth. Now maybe they didn't know that the Holy Spirit would do that, that he would guide them into all truth. Well, let's see here. Jesus said that he would. John 16, 12 through 15. This is long before this. He told them what was going to happen when they got the Holy Spirit. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, this is the Holy Spirit, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, 
He will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that my Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Okay. So they were told that the Holy Spirit was coming in a few days. They've been told and taught about the Holy Spirit, that he would guide them into all truth. That basically the Father and the Son were going to be speaking through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And they're like, that sounds amazing. Let's get out the dice. I'm just saying, maybe they jumped the gun. Maybe they jumped the gun, okay? Um, if I'm wrong, and Matthias is definitely supposed to be the 12th apostle, and it was supposed to happen by casting lots, I will apologize to Matthias. He'll forgive me. By the way, never see his name again. Never hear of Matthias again in the scriptures. Um, there are other apostles who you don't hear anything about, but it's interesting. Um, but I think, I think Paul makes more sense as the 12th apostle. Assuming that the 12 apostles were the actual apostles that had an office, you know, there's a possibility that there's more than 12, in which case, okay, it's all, it all works out. But I think it's possible they were supposed to wait because Paul was supposed to be that 12th apostle. And Paul calls himself an apostle here. Remember what they said. The 11 apostles gave some criteria. They said this, that the person have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they had to have been taught by Jesus for three years with them during his ministry from the baptism to the time that he rose and have been a witness of the resurrection. That's what you needed to do. Well, Paul was not with them all that time, right? But the essence of this is the person must have been taught by Jesus Christ directly and seen Jesus Christ alive after he was dead. They have to be a witness to the resurrection. Well, let's see if Paul fits that criteria of being taught by Jesus. Galatians 1, 11 through 12. But I make known to you, brethren... That the gospel, which was preached by me, is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ directly is the one who taught Paul. He was taught directly by Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, that's different, though, because the other apostles were taught for three years. Let's listen from the same chapter in Galatians. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. I didn't go to people to find out about this, is what he's saying. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem. He didn't go to see Peter and John, James, to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God I do not lie. Paul was taught directly by Jesus for three years. Sounds familiar. But did he see the resurrected Jesus because you have that issue, right? Well, yes, we hear Paul's testimony of his conversion directly uh, from Jesus Christ, from seeing Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, multiple times he walks through that experience. And then we have these words in 1 Corinthians 15. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 for 8, one of the oldest things that we have in the scriptures, okay? For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, 
but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So Paul saw the resurrected Lord, he was a witness to the resurrection, and he was taught by Jesus directly for at least three years from what we can gather. So a very distinct possibility here, right? And Paul knew he was an apostle. We see here Romans 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Do we see it anywhere else? Sure we do. Then we see it in a number of other places where it is clear that Paul's an apostle by God's will, not the choice of anybody else. Now, I'm not saying that Paul's kind of like throwing a little backhand here. I wasn't an apostle by lots, but by the will of God. He doesn't, he doesn't say that specifically, but let's look at a couple of things he says. Colossians 1.1. Or here, let's go Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. 2 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. It seems to me like Paul wants to make it really clear that his apostleship was not chosen by the other guys. But it was the will of God. Now, he really brings it home in this last one. Listen to one. Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. <sighs> either Paul was supposed to be the 12th apostle, or there were more than 12 apostles. You can take either, either position. And I'm fine with that. You don't need to hold one. And I don't think anybody holds it with absolute certainty that Paul was supposed to be the 12th apostle. But it sure looks like one of them was chosen by casting lots instead of waiting for the Holy Spirit. And the other one was clearly indicated to be an apostle by the will of God. The apostles, along with the prophets, are the ones who made up the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. What does our house look like? The apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, and then we're all being part built into it, fitting together with one another. This is body life stuff. This is the house of God stuff. The apostles were at the foundation. They were the ones who were, who were literally going around and saying, I saw him alive after he was dead. Remember, Christianity, belief in Christ, Christ following, is not based on wishful thinking and legends and Holy books that nobody knows what they really mean. It's not based on any of that. At the end of the day, it rises and falls on a historical fact. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's it. If you don't have that, everything else here is literally nonsense. It's built on a historical fact. The apostles were witnesses to that fact. Witnesses that were willing to die for the testimony that they saw Jesus alive after he died. Because everyone knew that if that was true, that he was God. And if he was God, then the reasonable response is confession, repentance, turning from sin, sticking your ear to the doorpost and getting that all put through it and being a bondservant of Christ. And not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody wants to do that. 
And so it was a significant thing. That's who the apostles were. That's why they're at the foundation. Those who prophesied the Lord coming, those who witnessed and testified to his resurrection. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. So when he says Paul, an apostle, that's not just a cool name he came up with. The apostle. Sounds good, right? It's not how he did it. Jim Gaffigan has a whole thing on the apostles. It's pretty funny. Anyway, that's why he's allowed to write them instruction and teach them. Okay, we got most of the way through verse 1. Um, <laughs> Lord willing, we're going to move a little faster through the text, but I want, I want to be transformed by this study. I want, it to, I want it to be in my heart and in my mind and in my soul, and I want, I want the Spirit of God with my spirit to renew me and make me new, and that means we've got to put some work into it. It's going to take some time. Things like that, they take work. Now, the last thing I want to say today, we've got a couple minutes. If you don't know Jesus, and you can't imagine why anyone would choose to be his bondservant, his slave, please take it from a person who desperately wants to identify as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Please take it from a person who can't do anything without the power of the Holy Spirit. You, you don't know what my life is like like I don't know what your life is like in the inner self. But let me tell you a little something about me. I am incapable of doing anything important, of doing anything for the kingdom, of being good to you or my wife or my daughter or my son or my brother or my sister or, any, or anyone without the Holy Spirit. I'm a bond servant because, not only because I love Jesus because of what he's done for me, but because I need him. I can't, I can't do it without it. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, you're weak. You got that right. You got that right. I'm not, look, I'm not up here, you know. You don't see me all fancy and thin and whatever. This ain't Chris Hemsworth up here. I'm just, oh, man. Yeah, all right. That's, I'll bring him next week. He's fine. He'll, he'll do it. Listen, I'm, I'm weak. I'm weak. It's, it's his strength that's made perfect in my weakness. In your heart, you probably know you are too. The only thing that's going to give you strength is by submitting to God, giving up this idea that you know what you're doing, that your truth is going to do anything for you. Your truth is going to lead you to death. His truth is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Jesus Christ. Yeah. Listen, I love him so much. It's hard for me sometimes when I look at the world and the difficulties in the world, and I know why they're there, because of me, because of the things that I've done, because of the things that you all have done, and the fact that he would forgive us and, and, let it, and get us through it and build that trust with us as he walks us through it. He loved me first, not when I was great, but when I was a wicked, sinful man. John, 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. Romans 5, 5 through 8. Listen. Now hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die as if there's any righteous men. Except for Jesus Christ. 
Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If that's you today, you're in that place, you don't know Jesus. You don't know what I'm talking about. You're like, Romans, this is old. I don't know what's going on. Give it to me in, in a way that I can understand it better. Listen, here's how you can understand it. You're dead without him. You're alive in him. That's what, I, I was dead without him. I'm alive in him. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. You're here for a reason. If you think that you're here because of a series of choices that had nothing to do with God, you are mistaken. If you're watching online and you just happen to click over to this, if you're watching this later on video, whatever, there's a reason God has made an appointment with you today. He is calling out to save you because he loves you, because you need him. Don't let that opportunity pass you by. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, this is so amazing. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, today is the day for you to do this, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Yes, absolutely. If you don't know Jesus and you're wondering why everyone's clapping, like, okay, that's, he didn't say anything that great. Listen, no, but the scripture did. Listen, if you are not saved, you have no idea the peace and the comfort that passes all understanding that you get in Jesus Christ. Listen, the narrow road is a difficult road. Don't get me wrong. It's not going to be easier. This is, this is not like, oh, come to the Lord and health and wealth and parties. and That's not the thing. Don't, don't even bother. Count the cost before you come to him. But listen to me. He gives us strength for the journey. He carries us through the valley of the shadow of death where we need fear no evil. He walks with us and he gives us the strength. Because I can't do this that I'm doing right now without him. And yet he gives me the strength for you. And he'll give you the strength to do all that he has called you to do. And let me just tell you, every single person here, every single person listening, you have things that you're being called to do. What you are currently doing is a small part of what he is going to be calling you to do. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, what you've done, where you've come from, how people have treated you. He's got a plan. Make yourself his bondservant and watch what it's like to truly be loved and to experience it. Listen, I love you. I want you to have Jesus. You're here today because he's drawing you and he's probably used other people to help that process go. But we have no fear when we trust him. I want you to trust him today. Let's pray.